And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, April 26th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, why Health and Human Services has to fix a fundamental responsibility. Plus, how the intelligence community will use psychology to outsmart cyber attackers. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, just 19 of 74 agencies either increased or held their employee engagement scores steady this year in the best places to work results. One of those agencies was the Energy Department. DOE moved up from 14th to 8th place in the Partnership for Public Services 2022 rankings. The key to improvement? No magic. Listen to employees and act on their feedback. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman sat down with Energy's Chief Human Capital Officer, Aaron Moore. Much of this does start with encouraging employees to speak up and provide feedback on their work environments. And we view FEVS as a really valuable tool for collecting employee input. From our DOE leaders, starting with the secretary and the deputy, on down to frontline managers and our supervisors, we promote the importance of FEVS and we actively encourage employees to participate in the survey. And this commitment from uh, DOE leadership has helped us to achieve the highest response rate among OPM's large agencies for the past five years. And so this past year in 2022, almost 70% of all eligible DOE employees participated in the survey. And that's significantly higher than the government-wide response rate and 20 points higher than other agencies in our category. And so I think that this really helps to ensure that we have good representative data to inform our planning. And most importantly, we pay attention to those results. What specific areas of the results do you look at and what kind of impact can that have? We know that there are several key factors that make an, an employer a choice connection to the work and mission, uh, having a positive relationship with your peers, investing in your people, and workplace flexibilities. And so we have been working really hard to provide an environment that embodies all of those attributes. From promoting the importance of a healthy workplace culture, collecting employee feedback through FEVS obviously is just the first step. And we know one of the worst things that we could do as an organization would be to promote the importance of participating in FEVS, but then not do anything with that survey data. And so that's why we work so hard each year to share the survey results as widely as possible across the department. So not only do we communicate those results to all DOE employees, the secretary and the deputy secretary include uh, highlighting key results in their employee messages. We post them to our intranet. And my team also provides custom reports at each organizational level within the entire department. And so this past year, my team issued over 600 reports where uh, at least 10 employees had completed the survey. So we are able to provide really granular data to many of our departments. And then my team can work with the leadership in those organizations to help them best share their organizational results, And we really feel it's important to be transparent with the data and make sure employees know the results and that DOE will be acting on the input that that they've provided us. 
I want to go back to something you said just a minute ago. The response rates that you get through FEVs, it's pretty much double the government-wide standard. So that that's a huge difference there. Can you tell me more specifically, how do you communicate with employees or encourage them to fill out that survey? Or why why is that number so high? I think it's so high because we focus on it at the top. The secretary and the deputy secretary issue uh, videos and communication to all employees before the start of this uh, of the FEVS uh, season, um, talking about the importance of it. And then that just cascades the entire way down the leadership chain. Um, all of the heads of our departmental elements, you know, we do a little competition. Uh, every week we show what the results are and who's doing better and who's doing worse. I also think it's really key that our employees take the survey seriously and they know that we'll do something with those results. And so it's frequent and often touch points and communication throughout the entire you know, six weeks that it's open. We also encourage employees to set aside time during uh, their day to take the survey. We found that that's one of um, the best practices to use. Um, to ensure people are doing it on their work time and not thinking that they have to use their personal time to give feedback on what they really think about the department. Something that a lot of agencies are kind of facing at this moment is the future of work. A lot of agencies are in a hybrid work schedule. Have you found that to be a challenge with trying to continually engage employees? You know, how are you trying to manage different leadership styles in a hybrid workforce now? I think engagement with employees is always difficult, whether you're face-to-face or whether you're virtual. Um, But even before the pandemic, the Department of Energy has always been in a hybrid environment. We've had field sites everywhere. Um, So you have people in D.C. talking to people in Chicago and in Oak Ridge. And in essence, that was virtual, even though some people were at their desk in in an office building. And you absolutely need to be more deliberate in this type of uh, environment. Coming out of the pandemic, like everybody, our employees were really uncertain what the post-pandemic workplace would look like. And we've positioned ourselves to really be at the forefront of embracing and adapting to new ways of working. We've evolved in our working patterns and flexibilities that, you know, had been on the rise in the private sector pre-pandemic. And our flexibilities are appealing to our workforce. We do options for telework, hoteling, remote work, um, offering flexibilities where the work allows it and it makes sense. But more importantly, trusting our employees to continue the high levels of productivity. And our employees responded this past year, 91% positive to the question on supervisor support work-life balance. And we know it's very important to our current workforce for us to help retain them, but we also know the importance of work-life flexibilities for prospective employees in order to make us competitive in the new hire market. And, you know, we can clearly see that by the number of applicants that apply to remote eligible positions versus geographic specific postings. You know, being flexible in this area helps us to expand our reach into more suburban and rural areas outside the Beltway across the entire country um, and moving outside of the traditional government urban centers. And, you know, not to mention that that is also helping to further our mission by reducing uh, emissions associated with commuting and promoting energy use and uh, savings in our facilities. 
But to touch a little bit more on the the engagement piece of things, we've really invested in technology needed to have a successful hybrid work environment, providing training um, on how best to leverage these technologies um, so that it's a collaborative and informative you know, place to, to share and still collaborate. In our FEVS results for that piece, it was 80% positive that um, our employees think they have the information they need to do their jobs. Again, it's being more deliberate and, and really taking that dedicated, proactive approach with you know, talking with your employees, talking with the broader team. I, I, I think you can't over-communicate. How do you communicate to employees that hey, you're actually paying attention to the data here? We do it in multiple ways. We we do it with DOE-wide results and, and communication that just goes to all employees. The secretary and the deputy talk about the importance of it and highlight you know things that we are working on as a result of the feedback from the FEVS. And then, again, each head of an organization takes it upon themselves to look at their specific results as well as the subcomponents within them. Again, we did the 600 reports, so there's very detailed information that we're giving managers at the lowest levels possible so they can look and and figure out what is going right, what is going wrong in their organizations and work to improve in those areas. Building off of that then and where maybe you are looking for improvements in the data, are there areas where the agency maybe is struggling a little bit or the scores aren't as high? And how are you working to address those areas? One area highlighted in the FEVS where we know we need to focus our attention is in the area of leadership. And this isn't unique to energy, but it's, you know, if if you look across the entire government, the leader's lead is um, an an area in FEVS that we all need to to focus on. And we know an organization's culture is set by its leadership and that leaders have an outsized impact on employee engagement. And so we have to lead by example. And so the uh, this year, the secretary and the deputy secretary created a a program and we we call it let's lead tracking a climate for change for leadership development for all of our executives they have reminded us consistently that leadership is a skill in its own right (laughs) one that requires constant training whether one is a new manager or you've been doing it for years you need still need to focus on it and work on it to improve And the Let's Lead um, introduces, it's a structured curriculum uh, to help reinforce key leadership behaviors to help us sustain these improvements that we've worked so hard to achieve. So we're focusing on fostering trust and respect, addressing issues, and communicating effectively. And, you know, the intent is for us as a leadership cadre to go through this together so that we become stronger leaders and as a DOE leadership team, that we continue to build a culture of trust and respect. Is participation in the program optional? And if so, how are you looking to get more people involved? 
it is optional. Uh, we did not want to to require people to do something that they didn't want to do because you wouldn't get good results from that perspective. It's intended for all of our executive leadership. And so the secretary uh, was personally involved in doing a kickoff for it. We had a speaker come in and we've partnered with Exec Online uh, to offer various tracks to um, our executives based on uh, various factors from the FAVS results that that track exactly to you know fostering trust and respect, addressing issues, and communicating effectively. So we created a tool where they could take certain questions from the FAVS, put them into the tool, and then it would identify a focus area for them. And then we had the track set up for them to to go online and take the training. We are monitoring it. We do have a really high participation rate. Um, my team in HC, we just went through one session together as a leadership team, and we're supposed to talk about what we learned. It's a year-long program. We're going to do and have another speaker coming up in the next couple of months. And so feedback has been really, really quite positive on it. Aside from that program, are there other areas or upcoming initiatives for the agency that maybe you're hoping will impact uh, employee engagement moving forward? Workload has been identified from our FEVS data as uh, a significant concern for our employees. And we've worked really hard to expand our recruitment and outreach activities to expand both the size and the diversity of our applicant pool, uh, while also investing in new technology to improve the efficiency in our hiring processes. We're reducing our time to hire, we're getting additional team members on board more quickly. Um, we are, this year we released, HC released our strategic plan and the goals outlined in the plan are all directed at growing and supporting our workforce. So we're looking at as I mentioned, how to use technology to in improve our recruitment and onboarding, um, pursuing strategies to support our workforce, not just as employees, but as individuals and people, and promoting healthy approaches to work-life balance and expanding our employee wellness offerings. Um, we continue to focus on employee development opportunities um, and expand resources for training and development. We've had really successful feedback from the employee development perspective. In our HC strategic plan, our third goal is uh, focused on training, supporting, and developing our workforce. And so we've really focused on re-gearing our professional and leadership development to be new virtual, on demand. Um, we've managed to increase our offerings at the same time. Uh, we've done a new suite of on-demand courses that have over 70,000 new learning assets for every employee. And that's you know, a comprehensive program for SES and senior leadership, as well as, you know, through the entire rank. And, you know, we're really focusing also on introducing some more modern style communications, such as eBooks and animations, some short videos, um, AI to better engage our distributed workforce. What would be your message to other agency human capital leaders and uh, other agencies that might be struggling a little bit more with their scores? I think it's human nature to try and explain away unfavorable results. We do it in our personal lives, we do it in our work lives, but 
the explanations that we give ourselves don't change the results, right? And I think all agencies, us DOE included, should really lean into what their employees are telling them through the feedback surveys, as well as other engagement, including listening sessions, individual team meetings. There's various ways other than the FAVS to get some granular data uh, for your workforce. And I think they need to lean in and accept what our employees are trying to tell us, that things can be better. And then we need to work to understand what's behind some of those challenges and collaborate with the employees to develop the strategies to fix it. I mean, we still have a ton of improvements to make, but we believe that our employees trust that we're working to support them and responding to feedback they've provided is helping to make DOE a, a great place to work. I also think that our human capital colleagues are amazing at sharing best practices. And so we have the ability, like from the data and the analysis that's been generated by FEVS and best places, we know what works and what doesn't work. So it provides us with an opportunity to learn from others. We review the rankings, we examine improvements other agencies, and the broader HC community is always extremely generous in sharing best practices. My colleagues and I know how important it is to take care of our employees. We're always willing to share what we've learned, either through a success or through a misstep that we had of what not to do. But it's really, you know, reaching out to others who have done this, learn what they did, and see how you can apply that to your own organization. Aaron Moore, Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Energy, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how the intelligence community will use psychology to outsmart cyber hackers. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Cyber hackers often take advantage of psychology, whether it's a common phishing attack or much worse. The Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Agency, IARPA, looks to flip that paradigm on its head. Its project, called Reimagining Security with Cyber Psychology Informed Network Defenses, or RESIND, aims to take advantage of hackers' own cognitive vulnerabilities, as they put it. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday got details from the program manager for RESIND, Kimberly Ferguson-Walter. If you've been around in the cybersecurity world, you've probably heard somebody say that the human factor is the weakest link in cybersecurity. So we know people make errors, people make mistakes, people miscalculate risks, and it can also be hard to train them not to repeat these mistakes. But this statement tends to be focused on the mistakes of users, software developers, and system administrators. But I believe that this human factor can also be leveraged against cyber attackers. So this program it will focus on just that, on flipping the tables to make the human factor the weakest link in cyber attacks. Yeah, I mean, obviously, psychology plays such a huge role in how cyber attacks are designed, whether it's you know phishing and getting someone to click on a link. And so this kind of flips that on its head a little bit. Can you explain a little bit more about how exactly you envision doing that? You talk about, uh, I think, in the project um, technical description here, cognitive vulnerabilities. What are those and, and how might they be exploited in this case? Great question. So we use the term cognitive vulnerability as an umbrella term that encompasses uh, cognitive and decision-making biases 
Um, so these could be things like the sunk cost fallacy that makes people continue to work on an area even though they should switch to an alternate path. Uh, it includes uh, innate cognitive limitations. So like um, people can only remember so many things, right? So that's a, a limitation. It includes uh, emotion and mental state. So for example, if you're frustrated, you might behave differently um, than otherwise. And uh, also physiological vulnerabilities. So people can behave differently when they're, let's say, sleep deprived or under stress. And so we're interested in those concepts, but um, as far as they can result in a reduced uh, cyber attacker success or effectiveness. And how you go about identifying those vulnerabilities in a cyber attacker? Good question. So as part of the program, um, we're looking for novel approaches to do a variety of things um, to this end goal. One, we're looking for performers to identify and model human limitations or cognitive vulnerabilities that are specifically relevant to cyber attacker behavior. Two, uh, we're looking to understand, measure, and induce changes in cyber attacker behavior and success on network. So we're going to be using cyber data available to network defenders, and we're going to be utilizing uh, system and network calls already available to us. And three, provide algorithms for automated adaptation of these solutions uh, based on observed cyber attacker behavior. And so if a, a company will kind of be able to access all these things, a company or a university or whatever, whoever might propose to do this, they don't have to bring this data in. You'll kind of be able to provide some of it to them and they can also provide their own approaches to maybe gleaning these vulnerabilities. Is that right? Yeah, so so we're asking for uh, performers uh, to come in. It's a very multidisciplinary effort. And so we're asking the performers to come in with a human subjects research experimental plan on how they are going to uh, determine what biases or cognitive vulnerabilities are most uh, applicable to a cyber attacker, sort of like what phases of the cyber attack they focus on and what are the right kinds of situations that we can create in the cyber domain to induce or intensify these biases in order to uh, reduce attacker success? Got it. Interesting. I mean, it's it's really fascinating thinking about kind of taking the uh, the proverbial cloak off of the cyber attacker. They always seem like such shadowy figures, and maybe you you can really delve into their minds a little bit and, and figure out what what exactly, uh, what their weaknesses are. So that, that seems really, really interesting. And then there's different phases to this project. Can you kind of explain how that will work? Sure. Yeah. So this is a 45 month program. It has three phases. The first phase is really about figuring out which cognitive vulnerabilities are most applicable. How do you measure them? Um, accurately with using data we have as cyber defenders, and how do you induce them uh, by creating situations in cyberspace? The second phase is more about, well, when, when should you use which ones, right? So we have to learn about these different cognitive vulnerabilities. They may be situational dependent. And so you need to know things like uh, what external features matter? Is it going to be a host-based uh, trigger you're doing or a network trigger? Do time factors matter? Other mission contexts? What about the attacker behaviors in general? Do in individual differences matter? Uh, does it matter if this, uh, you know, somebody tends to be more risk-averse or less risk-averse? 
And then there are a sort of well-known factors that affect uh, cognitive biases, such as some are uh, more powerful if there is uncertainty involved, or some are more powerful if you have time constraints, and sort of figuring out all of those different aspects, but in the cyber context. And then uh, the third phase is about how do you automate it? How do you combine the different approaches? Um, and uh, how do we model the behavior that we've been measuring? So a large part of the program is uh, human subjects research. So we're planning to do large scale experimentation with cyber experts to help evaluate the techniques and approaches that the, the performers are delivering. And so that's gonna create um, a, a new exciting data set that we're hoping to make available publicly. So actually this, this could become public data one day to help cyber defenders across the world to try to understand this issue. That's yeah, that's right. So I um, I really feel like there's been a lack of research and understanding that human aspect of cyber, both from the defender and attacker side. And one of the problems, if you talk to researchers who are trying to work in this area, data is always their number one. Well, I can't do it. I don't have the data. And so we're hoping to provide a, a data set that will be um, open for people to do future research in um, cyber decision making. Got it. And it sounds like phases two and three will really be focused on the question of how exactly you embed this in cyber defenses, whatever that might mean, whether it's how software developers develop their their, their products or how, how network defenders actually put together their different, you know, detection response capabilities. It sounds like those phases will kind of move this more toward reality. Am I getting that basically right? Yeah, you're right. So in phase one, um, there's a lot of psychology involved. A lot of the um, psychology that's been done for decades, it doesn't necessarily abstract directly to the cyber domain. So we need to do that, uh, you know, new specific experiments um, looking at cyber. And then when we get to the further phases, yes, we're looking at actually developing the software to work on system. And then, uh, you know, as we get on to phase three, we're looking at um, making it more, more usable, more automated and more transitionable. Got it. Yeah. Well, it'll be fascinating to, to watch that evolve. Taking a step back, is there any existing research into this idea of kind of cyber psychology informed defenses? So for the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, I've been working in the area of cyber deception. And so the origins of this idea do come from some of the research that's done there. While research is limited, there are several companies that are now focusing on cyber deception technologies. And these include things like honeypots, decoy systems, and honey tokens. IARPA had actually previously um, put out an RFI uh, to these kinds of companies. And what we discovered was that they seldom included behavioral scientists as part of their team, and they seldom performed human subjects research um, while creating these techniques or to test the techniques. Instead, um, these deception technologies are actually, you know, constructed by engineers and technologists, and they're, they're good ideas and they, they work well. Um, but the psychological theory and impact feels like more of an afterthought. And so this program sort of seeks to reverse this process and first understand the foundational cyber psychology and then build the technology based on those findings. 
Kimberly Ferguson-Walter, program manager for IARPA's Rescind Project, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, when it's better for a subcontractor to walk away from a federal deal. But first, why Health and Human Services has to fix a fundamental responsibility. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Throughout the pandemic, citizens might have suspected that components of the Health and Human Services Department weren't quite coordinated. Now the Government Accountability Office has put HHS leadership and coordination of public health emergencies on the list of at-risk federal programs. For why, exactly, we turn to the GAO's Director of Healthcare Issues, Mary Denigan McCauley. Ms. McCauley, good to have you on. Great. Good to be on, Tom. Thank you. All right. So why did HHS's coordination and leadership here in public health emergencies make the high risk list? Yeah, well, it's not something that we take lightly, and it certainly isn't something that just came about in light of the pandemic. We looked at over a decade worth of work, and we really have seen some persistent deficiencies in HHS's ability to perform its role, leading the nation's preparedness for response to and recovery from a pandemic. HHS is a department, but it's many components, and you've got a lot of subcomponents that impinge on this. CDC, for one, different pieces of NIH, as we learned, you know, in the pandemic, the infectious disease group, and then there's FDA has a role. Is this what you're talking about? Is it the coordination and the story getting out in some cogent fashion of what's going on within HHS, or does it also involve other departments? Well, for the high-risk designation, we are talking about HHS and those components that you spoke with. In particular, ASPR, which is now known as the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response, has that lead medical and preparedness response and recovery role that it needs to carry out. But it doesn't do this alone. Public health isn't done just at the federal level. It takes a whole of government approach. And so they have to work with their key stakeholders, including other federal agencies, as well as state, local, tribal, and territorial partners. It's a pretty big endeavor that they have to do. And what happened specifically during the COVID pandemic that gave rise or that showed in relief what their issues are with respect to leadership and coordination? Well, unfortunately, we found quite a few different areas and we're able to lump them into a few buckets. So if you take one of our first buckets is really looking at roles and responsibilities. You can't have confusion during the middle of a crisis. You have to be able to act immediately because every second counts. And you're not just talking about a hypothetical here. You're talking about lives. You're talking about work. You're talking about children being able to be in school when you're looking at a pandemic. It affected absolutely every aspect of our life. So being able to understand the roles and responsibilities and not bickering over them and trying to figure out who's in charge is really critical. And one one particular area that we saw that happen with was the repatriation, bringing our um, Americans home that were over in China or stuck on cruise trips is a great example where there was no clear leadership and CDC was looking at Asper and Asper was looking at CDC and pointing like who has responsibilities and it really puts not only the responders 
responders at risk, but then the community. I mean, some people that should have been quarantined started to walk out into the community. So in addition to roles and responsibilities, you also need complete and consistent data. If you look at how our data is collected, it's very disparate. It takes all of those layers of the U.S. government, and it needs to be rolled up to get a national picture, and we just don't have that capability right now. So that's another area. And communication, right? We all saw the communication problems that were occurring. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Make sure that you get the vaccine. Don't worry, you're going to be 100% protected. Well, it's not really 100% protection. It stops you from going into the hospital. So you have to have clear communication in order to build trust. Transparency and accountability. I mean, if you you look at the arguments that are going on over just the origins of, of the COVID and does is there enough oversight of this risky type of research and being transparent about that oversight instead of keeping it in a black box, absolutely paramount. And then last but not least, understanding your key partners' capabilities and limitations, making sure that you know, for example, if the Department of Defense is going to come and help, what resources are they going to bring during the hurricanes Irma and Maria? We saw this as really a problem. They brought resources that HHS didn't need at that particular time. So that's key too. understanding your partner's capabilities. We're speaking with Mary Dennigan-McCauley. She's Director of Healthcare Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And what about the idea of doctrine? I mean, if you look at the Defense Department, they have detailed plans and detailed operational, well, it's called doctrine, for if this happens, here's what we do and here's who does it. I've read over the years, as far back as the George W. Bush administration, there was a substantial, I guess the word nowadays they use is playbook, for what happens in a pandemic. And nobody could find that book or nobody paid any attention to it. It seems like that's a missing element also, is a master plan. Yeah. So, Tom, it's I'm laughing because it's the big question. What happened to the plans? Why didn't we follow the plans? Because we certainly had a lot of plans. And I've been at GAO long enough to have looked at those plans. You know, we started those plans when we saw bird flu um, coming about and worried that that was going to become a human pandemic. And plans are only as good as they are tested. And the testing then reveals gaps and you have to close the gaps. So that's first and foremost, but also plans are full of assumptions. And one of the assumptions was that it was going to be an influenza, that you would have test kits available and ready to go for an influenza pandemic. This was not an influenza pandemic. And so our hope is that HHS, and we're going to continue to follow up on this, is look at some of the assumptions and look at the testing and look at the exercising and how they're going to revise those plans that we're better prepared for next time and fill those gaps. And I guess GAO can't address this directly, but it seems that when there is this vacuum of leadership coordination and nobody knows who's supposed to do what, that leaves a lot of running room for politicians to come in and weigh in. And we saw that a lot during the pandemic, too. Is that part of the report or is that kind of just implied to the people you deliver the report to? I think that if you look at communication and you look at leadership commitment, those two come hand in hand with the work that we've done. You do need clear communication. You certainly don't want an administration or a head of an agency saying something different than another head of an agency. And so that's all part of what we feel is needed going forward is to make sure that you do have consistent communication that is clear and you don't have mixed signals because the public is not going to trust the science 
science. They're not going to trust the politicians if there's mixed signals. Right, because large public health emergencies brew that kind of conflict that is always inherent in some of these things, and that is liberty versus individual choice versus what you need to do because you are part of a community, and there's no single dead right answer on that. But those are the kind of issues that get squirreled up when these happen. That's right. Absolutely. And it's particularly challenging, too, because we're not like some countries where you can just say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to lock down. You're not going to be able to move. We have states. They have independent rights. And so that communication becomes even more important when you have a constitutional setup like we have here in the United States. All right. Then what's the prescription here? How did HHS take the report being on the high risk list and the documentation of that? And what is your best recommendations for them to get off the list? Well, it certainly is not going to happen overnight. And I think HHS recognizes that. First and foremost, you don't have just one agency within HHS that needs to resolve this problem. And the agencies have taken this very seriously. You may have heard that ASPR is undergoing a realignment where they want to become a standalone agency to be able to be more nimble and to be able to respond more effectively. We're watching that transformation there. CDC has also said that they're going to undergo some reform, as is FDA. So we're watching all of these reform efforts very carefully. And as a part of reform effort, you also need to make sure that you have the workforce. And that's what we call building the capacity to make sure you have the right experts with the right understanding resources at your helm to be able to implement the changes that you want to do as well. And of course, you have to have leadership commitment. Without leadership commitment, it's all for naught. And we need to have sustained attention because, as we've seen, with changes in administration come changes with with the plans that are put on paper. And so, really, we need sustained attention, which is what we're hoping that this will bring. Finally, we need to have action plans. And while there are some broad plans out there, we need real root cause action plans to be able to get at solutions and milestones and the resources that are needed. And then, of course, very GAO-ish, you have to monitor it and you have to track your progress. All right. Well, that's what I guess we need to know. Let's hope it doesn't happen again, a pandemic. But if it does, maybe we'll be better prepared now. Mary Dennegan-McCauley is Director of Healthcare Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, for having me on this important issue. And we'll post this interview plus a link to the HHS analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come when it's better for a subcontractor to walk away from a federal deal. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Bad things can happen when contractors fail to include their subs in negotiations with the government. The Air Force decided to redo its approach to a small construction contract. That drove up costs. But the Prime signed on to a new price without the agreement of its subcontractor, so the whole thing ended up before the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. Haynes Boone procurement attorney Dan Ramish has more. And Dan outlined this case for us. I guess it started out when the Air Force totally changed the ground rules of a small project to install an alarm system that it had agreed to. Yeah, that's right. So this was a small $2 million job to 
replace a fire alarm control panel and fire suppression system at Eglin Air Force Base. And the contractor, which does business, is Optimum Construction, learned from the Air Force at the pre-construction conference that there was going to be a change in the contract work hours and sequence. So the contractor had planned in its proposal, and the original contract had anticipated that the work would happen during normal business hours, and that the fire suppression system would be replaced on each floor and that the whole floor would be effectively cleared and unoccupied so the contractor could handle one floor and then handle the next floor and then handle the next floor. And the Air Force talked to its customer in the building and unsurprisingly, the customer didn't like this idea that they were going to have to clear out their offices. So the Air Force said, no, no, this work is going to have to be performed nights and weekends and we're going to handle it office by office instead of the entire floor. So it's a classic change. Of course, the change in sequence and the change in work hours affected the contractor's costs, and it also affected the costs of its major subcontractor, Pew. So Optum here initially talked to Pew in negotiating a modification to capture these changes with the Air Force and got an initial price. But then they had subsequent negotiations with the Air Force to come to agreement on a bilateral modification. And it turned out that the Air Force ultimately played hardball and said that the contractor had to agree to a $200,000 modification, or at least this is what Optimum says, or the Air Force would terminate the contract for convenience. So Optimum agreed to a $200,000 modification, but this meant dramatically decreasing the costs that were uh, for its subcontractor's work. Right. Optimum Uh, had demanded another almost a million dollars, and the Air Force sort of bargained them down to 200000 and the subcontractor wanted about 100000 more, and it ended up with only $13,000 unbeknownst to it, correct? That's right. And Optimum decided not to go back to its subcontractor and get their buy-off before agreeing to a bilateral modification. Actually, they submitted the proposal for the about $200,000 without talking to the sub, and then the sub actually learned about it afterwards before the mod was signed and said, wait a minute, this doesn't capture all of our costs. And they explained the reasons for it, that because the work was going to happen every night and the offices weren't being cleared, they were going to have to demobilize and remobilize every day. So there was tools, scaffolding, equipment, materials, and they couldn't just leave it in the office because people were going to use the office during the day. So it was easy to see why this affected their costs. But Optimum went ahead, did the contract, and then paid whatever it could pay extra to its subcontractor, Pew. Pew wasn't too happy. What happened next? So Pew went ahead and submitted an REA after the work was completed for the extra costs, which did end up being more like what its original proposal had provided for, so an extra $90,000. And Optimum received the REA and passed it through to the Air Force, but made some kind of disparaging comments suggesting that it caught them off guard and they didn't feel the subcontractor's claim was warranted and that they didn't stand behind it, things like that. And unsurprisingly, the Air Force rejected the REA, and then when Optimum converted the REA to a claim, the Air Force contracting officer denied that in a final decision as well. We're speaking with Dan Ramish, a procurement attorney at Haynes Boone. So done, paid, but it wasn't over yet. And what was the reasoning for the board in deciding what it decided? So the board came back and noted that there wasn't a constructive change 
insofar as a modification had already been executed for the changes that the subcontractor was complaining about. So there hadn't been additional changes. They were covered by the modification pretty clearly. And they pointed out that Pew had raised this issue with the prime contractor at the time and went ahead anyway. And they also pointed out that the modification, as is standard, included release language. So the government had an accord and satisfaction defense that this was effectively settlement for the changes and the contractor had been paid for them. It was a fixed price and that was the end of the issue. There were a couple of kind of side arguments that Optimum had made in its appeal. They argued that they had signed the modification under duress because the contracting officer had supposedly threatened to terminate the contract for convenience. And the board said, well, the government has the right to terminate the contract for convenience. And so it didn't constitute duress to say that they might do that. Right. Uh, So now the resulting argument then potentially is between the sub and its prime because the government got its alarm system, paid for it, and they're done. That's right. The challenge that prime contractors face when they're dealing with modifications that affect subcontractors' costs and schedule is not getting stuck in the middle. So it's preferable for the prime to deal with it when they're negotiating the modification and include the sub enough so that the sub feels that their interests are aligned and that they have kind of the subprime contractor has buy off on the ultimate result in the modification. And the way it went down here, not getting final approval from the subcontractor and then kind of disparaging the REA and submitting it, the subcontractor can't be very happy with that result and it risks a follow-on action by the subcontractor against the prime. Right. So maybe there are some times when a sub should say to a prime, you know what, sorry, forget about it. Even though it's hard to turn down business, but it might be better to not have the revenue than to lose money, right? Right. Well, the sub here, if it had been engaged through to the end and had been faced with the joint decision to either move forward with the much lower $200,000 modification instead of million-dollar modification or walk away or face a recompetition, the subcontractor might have made the same decision. But because they weren't engaged at the time of the mod, now the prime may be stuck in the middle having to pay some cost to the subcontractor that it can't recover from the government. All right. So what would your advice be to your prime client, say? Well, whenever you're dealing with a bilateral modification, read it carefully and understand that it will cover the subject matter of the mod. And it will be difficult and potentially impossible to recover more for that same work because there will be a standard release involved. And to the extent that there are subcontractor costs and schedule, uh, it's always preferable to deal with those issues up front, particularly when the sub is raising their hand and saying, hey, this doesn't cover my needs. Right. And don't assume that because the government has greatly modified the terms of work that you can get away with a gigantic price increase if in reality it's only a fourth of what you thought it might be. That's true. The board pointed out here that the initial proposal from the prime contractor was more than $800,000, $900,000, and their ultimate costs were only $300,000. So there was a big drop-off between what the prime originally said it was going to cost extra to perform the changes in the work and what they ultimately incurred. All right. Never a dull moment in contracting. (laughs) Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney at Haynes Boone. As always, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
And be sure to join Federal News Network's inaugural Customer Experience Exchange starting tomorrow. Two afternoons of federal and industry insight on how to achieve better service to constituents and to your own employees. Hear the kickoff keynote from NASA Associate Administrator Bob Gibbs. Register now at federalnewsnetwork.com. In the aftermath of a leak of classified information, allegedly by a Massachusetts Air National Guard member, security clearances are again under scrutiny. They also remain on the Government Accountability Office's high-risk list. But transformation has been underway since long before that latest incident. Changes include an overhaul of the vetting process and improvements to onboarding cleared personnel. Jason Miller is the Office of Management and Budget's Deputy Director for Management. He talked about the clearance reforms with Lindy Kaiser, the host of another federal news network show, Security Clearance Insecurity. When you look at the change we're trying to make, it's important to start with you know why we are measuring what we're currently measuring. So if you look back to you know, 20 years ago when some of this measurement, a little less than 20 years ago when some of this measurement was put into place, it was to make sure that we actually had our arms around and could manage the vast majority of cases. And that was the right thing to do at that point in time. Now, I would expect, and this I expect this is the true for your community, the vast majority of time we spend talking about problems often is in the 10% of cases that we are not actually managing or that we are not actually measuring. And if we're not measuring something, it's very hard to manage it and to improve it. The move forward here is to actually look at all 100% of the cases that are going through the overall system and setting our metrics accordingly to targets for the overall 100%. And you're right, that is a big deal. That also means that today, to some extent, we're overstating how well we are doing because we're not measuring and reporting on the other 10%. That's an important change. It will mean we capture everything inside of it. And when we are moving towards our new ambitious targets, which I'm happy to talk about, they're even more ambitious than the delta between what we currently target today and those numbers because of that capture of the longest cases that are going through the end-to-end security clearance processing system. Yeah, well, let's talk about the targets. Why the shift to move those and make those more aggressive at this point? It seems like there's so much going on right now. You might have pushback to say, hey, let's not improve things, right? Or, or, or move those metrics around. Maybe speak to why you've announced new benchmarks for reporting times. So targets are important both from a external communication of what do we expect to achieve with all of the set different pieces of activity that is underway. And it's really important from an internal management standpoint in terms of what are the changes that we need to make to our processes. And it's actually very hard to prioritize unless we have a finish line in mind. So for both of those, here's what we're going to get from the reforms that are in place and the overall transformation effort, and then what's the work that we need to do inside the tent on optimizing all of the different process steps, we need those targets for both of those things. So the end-to-end vetting process targets that we are aiming for, consistent with the move to three tiers, low, moderate, and high, is for low 25 days, that's application through final adjudication, 40 days for moderate and 75 for high tier. We already talked about the shift tonight from 90 to 100 and how that is a huge change today. Top secret. So, you know, comparable to what we'll say high tier, our goal is 114 days for the 90%. 
we're moving to 75. Not only that, but we're moving from not when the application is completed, but from when the application is sent. So we're capturing more of the process. That's also because we're trying to improve that piece of the process. So we want to be able to measure it as well. The other thing that we announced in terms of metrics was a new measure, which is favorability to onboard. And that's a really key component where we're not just thinking about the overall and then vetting process, but for mission reasons, we need people doing the job. So how quickly can we get people doing the job? Uh, and for that, low tier 21 days, so not that much additional time relative to the end-to-end process, for high tier 30 to 45 days. So we're getting people into seat at the end of this overall effort meaningfully faster than our already meaningfully faster set of targets that we're putting into place. I mean, I mean, those are significant metrics and really important ones. I think we talked to our community of both the government, government agencies and defense contractors trying to onboard people that favorable to onboard is a really significant metric that you're adding because that's dollars and cents, right? In terms of both contracts and the federal government's ability to do its job. So very exciting. I want to talk a little bit about MBIS and CV because those are the big muscle movements around Trust Workforce 2.0. PACPMO is providing a ton of updates and, and kind of insights into that. How important are those elements to the processes and to being able to have this favorable to onboard, better benchmarks, 100% reporting, all of that? NBIS is very much like the long pole in the tent in the overall transformation effort that has been true throughout my now just closing in on two years in this role, including as the chair of the PAC. At the very beginning of the new set of PAC principles coming on board, We worked closely with DCSA and the broader DOD team to make sure that we were providing to the overall pack, to the interagency, visibility on the key deployment milestones, key objectives associated with NBIS, because it's not just the development of it, it's also the use of NBIS by the federal enterprise. As we look to this year, the move from EQIP to EAP is a major shift in a very short period of time that we are driving. It is implementation priority number one. And we have seen successful steps over the last two in moving people into continuous vetting. The move in continuous vetting now is on the non-sensitive public trust population that we're trying to move into continuous vetting. We've already moved the national security sensitive population in. We have about 4.4 million people that are utilizing continuous vetting. And then we're continuing to improve the system for continuous vetting as well. So we've moved people into what we call 1.5 on the path to 2.0. So a lot of progress. Yes, a lot of different moving pieces. And I have to commend the DOD and DCSA team on just the overall continued march forward on NBIS development and onboarding agencies and also the thousands and thousands of private organizations that are going to need to use that system. You kind of tied to that. So this is truly an interagency effort involving a lot of different players and parts and pieces. Can you maybe speak to the PAC PMO role and gathering all those folks together and how you work with the executive agents to move all of these moving pieces of the reform effort forward? Yeah. So the PAC PMO and PMO important, right? It's a project management office, program management office is driving forward all of the component pieces, holding the different owners accountable 
on deadlines and then bringing people together to surface issues and resolve issues. That's what a good PMO does. That team is excellent at it. And we harness that to make sure that leaders at the pack level are able to have visibility on where we have any sticky wickets that we then need to either reprioritize, that we need to make a set of decisions around on on how we're going to move the ball forward. But that's been a really key tool, and we would not be where we are, but for the creation and the successful execution by the PAC PMO. Yeah. I mean, also from my vantage point, it is an incredibly important effort. If you go to performance.gov, you are providing quarterly updates on that process. I think when we see security clearances in the news, it's painful to me because I see all of the lack of awareness of people not understanding the process, even though there is a lot of data and metrics out there that PAC PMO is providing when it comes to, you know, how big is the security clearance population? Kind of people act like that's a surprise. You're tracking those figures, right? You're tracking, you know, you have a ton of benchmarks, not just the processing time benchmarks. So maybe even can you speak to that kind of oversight awareness function, providing those quarterly updates and why that's really important to the security clearance process? It is one, there's a lot of stakeholders per us doing this conversation. There's a lot of stakeholders who are interested in the changes that we're making because it has meaningful impact. We provide those quarterly updates, both from a transparency standpoint People want to see the progress that we're making, know what the implications are for them, for their organizations. But it's also a key management tool. By being transparent about these numbers, it holds us, it holds the interagency accountable to make sure that we're delivering. We're not only transparent on the numbers, we're transparent on what our target dates are for completion of various steps. Again, that's important because others might need to take their own actions associated with those different timelines. But by putting those measures out there publicly, not just in an internal document, we are accountable to the public because we've promised to achieve things on a set set of dates. That's Jason Miller, OMB's Deputy Director for Management, speaking with Lindy Kaiser, Senior Editor at ClearanceJobs.com and host of the Security Clearance Insecurity here on Federal News Radio. To hear the full conversation, just tune in Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen. 